If it's your first time with us, we're really glad that you're here uh, with us. And uh, just to get you up to speed, we've been working through the New Testament book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, on the man and the message and the mission of Jesus. It's just an awesome book. I've been having a great time with it. In the past five weeks, as we've been going through this book that we'll be in for about a year and a half, the past five weeks, we've really been focusing in on kind of a series within the series, and that is uh, on being sent. That this kind of takes this turn towards Jesus preparing his people to be sent out, to do what he has called us to do, to continue on his mission throughout um, the, the earth here. And so he, he's, as we've been kind of studying along, we've seen Jesus training people up so that they can carry out his mission. He'll then send them out on the mission, kind of on these practice runs of sorts. They'll come back. He'll debrief with them a bit. He'll clarify some things with them a bit. He does it again, this time not with 12, but with 72. He sends them out. They come back. He debriefs with them. There's a ton of preparation to get them and to get us ready to reflect his heart of love and sacrifice throughout the the world. And today we get a a little bit more of this idea of being sent on the mission of Jesus. We get this uh, idea about how we're going to to really make an impact and be effective in what he's called us to do in Boston and beyond. And so Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 through 42 is where we're going to be today. We're going to finish out all of chapter 10 And uh, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles provided around the room. We'll put it up on the screen as well. Or you can uh, get the Bible right there on your phone on the Bible app. Uh, But we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, 25 through 42. And while you're getting there, um, let me just say this. Let me just say that there is probably no better passage in the entire Bible to, to really sum up our sincere desire for this church family. And all that we've envisioned from day one when we started this church just a few years ago. And it'll take years for us as a church to to build into becoming this kind of people. But I'm excited to say that it's it's happening. Uh, We've been praying this year um, as a church family specifically for just the health of the church. And it's happening on many, many levels. And uh, we're just going to going to continue to fight for it as a church. We do not want to become just church Americana. We don't want to just be the church on the street corner. And this passage, I believe, really, really sums this up for us. And so let's jump right in. Luke chapter 10, and start with me in verse uh, 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We'll stop there. So this lawyer stands up. Jesus has been talking to his people and there's other crowds around. The last thing we saw is that he kind of turns aside to talk to his his disciples in private. Then he goes back to the crowds here. And among the crowds, there's this lawyer. He stands up to engage Jesus. And and the first thing we read here is that he he stood up to speak to to Jesus. And, And in that culture, in that time, you would stand up to honor somebody. It was a sign of respect. And so this lawyer stands up to honor Jesus. But the second thing we read is it says he stood up in order to put Jesus to the test. And so he's putting Jesus to the test. He, he's, he's messing with Jesus in a sense here. Do, do you see the problem with this? Do you see the inconsistency with, with what's going on here? What is it? Right out of the gate, we, we see that we've got a man whose heart and whose actions don't match up. And, and that's a real problem. 
Josh, you mean to tell me that a person could show up to church but not give a rip about Jesus and his heart? Josh, you mean, to, you mean to tell me that a person could partake of communion in the church service but have zero communion with Jesus outside of the church service? Josh, you mean to tell me that, that a person could profess to follow the one who sacrificed it all for mankind but be willing to sacrifice nothing for anybody other than his or her own family? Yeah, that's what I mean to tell you. And that's what Jesus means to tell us here. And that's exactly what will render us ineffective as a church and make us like much of the church across the rest of our nation. Completely irrelevant. Just another social club out there that nobody's got time for. A place where where people can outwardly, maybe once a week, go through some motions, some rituals, but not really do anything that reflects what they actually believe in their heart. And there's a ton of stuff going on out there in evangelism or evangelicalism today to to try to make the church more relevant, more effective, more with it. But you want to be relevant? The best way to be relevant is to actually live out what we say we believe to actually live out the the, the scriptures here. So this, this man stands up in order to honor Jesus, but his actions are far different than what's actually going on in his heart. And so your first takeaway for today is don't be that guy, right? That's your first takeaway. We don't want to be that guy. I told you up front, our, our, our sincere desire for our church family is reflected in this passage. That we do not want to be people whose hearts and whose Sunday actions don't really match up. That we'd be authentic to the core, that we would not be people who just go through a bunch of motions. Now, the man stands up, messing with Jesus, and what does he ask of Jesus? He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's the question, isn't it? And that is, that's the question. It works from the conclusion that there is more to this life than what we see here in this life. And so he asks, Jesus, how do we get there? How, how, how do I get that? And what is Jesus' response? Look at verse 26. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus kind of flips it on the lawyer here. You like that? I love how Jesus does that all the time. He asks good questions back of people. He says, well, how, how do you read it? You're an expert in the law. What is your interpretation? And so the lawyer answers, look at verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy. That's the easy answer. It's the the Shema. It's the first scripture that a Jewish child would have learned. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And and that's true for us today, that, that if you submit to God, every part of your being, that means your heart, your, your soul, and your mind, that speaks of the totality of who you are. If, if you'll submit everything to Jesus and love him and trust him completely and trust him with your eternity and trust him with your mistakes, then you will have life and life eternally. It's total, complete faith in him. He, he gives the right answer. The lawyer goes on then and, and quotes Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 Uh, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what that tells us, hearing those two verses coupled together, 
tells us that this guy's been hanging around Jesus a little bit. He's been hearing Jesus talk because these two passages of Scripture, Jesus has been coupling together throughout uh, the gospel and throughout his ministry on earth. He says that if you love God with every ounce of your being, then you will love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And so the lawyer gives to Jesus exactly what he has been hearing Jesus teach. And so what does Jesus say back? Continue on, verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. Good job. He says, now do this and you will live. In other words, you got the right answer, but now you've actually got to live this out. You you want to live eternally? Submit everything to Jesus. Love him with every ounce of who you are. Trust him with every ounce of who you are. You want to live not just eternally, but live life to the fullest on this earth? Two kinds of life here we're talking about. Eternal life and life to the fullest on this earth. You want that? Then you also got to love him with everything you got and flowing out of that love people selflessly. Now that's where the dialogue should end, right there, right? It should just be, okay, got it, good, we're done. But the lawyer keeps on with with another question. And, And what that tells us is that the lawyer has asked the first question about eternal life to actually get to the second question. You ever think a few steps ahead when you're talking to somebody? That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm gonna ask him this, but I'm really trying to get him here. He's a good lawyer, and that's what he does with Jesus. What does he say? Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Ah, you got it? So all along he'd been honoring Jesus and then inquiring of Jesus in order to justify himself, in order to feel better about himself, in order to make himself look good. And the funny thing is he he thinks he knows exactly Jesus' answer to the question. And it's going to make him look really, really good. It would kind of be like a, 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 a fireman from 9-11 asking someone, so, so tell me, who are the real heroes of 9-11? Well, they know the answer you're going to say. Or, well, the firemen and, and the police officers, the, the, the first responders, knowing how you're going to answer. Not that they would actually do that, but that's what it kind of would, would be like. The, the man, he, he's a lawyer, and, and he, he, he knows the Old Testament law and the Old Testament charity expectations very well. He himself has been giving alms. He himself would have been providing for uh, the right people. He knows it well. He knows that my life looks really, really good. It would be like at our church family meeting, the next family meeting that we have where it's just church members, and we come together, and, and maybe there's a wealthy person among us who says, I want to make a proposal my proposal is that we publish everybody's giving records, knowing that they've been giving very faithfully and that it would make them look really, really well. Now, we would never do that, but that, it would be like that. This guy thinks he knows what Jesus is going to say. He thinks Jesus say, good question, my good man. Your neighbors are the people you are to love as much as yourself are your family. And the people around say, yeah, he does that. He does that really, really well. The, the people that you are to love as much as yourself are the people who are part of your, your synagogue, your, your synagogue friends. And people maybe say, he and his wife brought us a meal last week. That, wow, he, he really lines up with Jesus. The, the people that you are to love as much as yourself are your, your fellow countrymen. Well, he loves Israel. He's, he's loyal. He goes to the temple. He, he, he gives to the temple. Golf clap, right? That's what he thinks Jesus is going to give back. And everybody's going to be really impressed. Well, watch how Jesus pops this man's inflated head. It's, it's great. Because 
You know, some people think that we're good with God when our hearts are actually far from Him. And I want all of us, all of us, no matter where you think you're at with Jesus, to open your mind up for the rest of our time together to that possibility. That could there be a possibility that you, you think you're great with God and you're just, you're living how He wants you to live, but, but it is, is it a possibility that your heart is actually far from Him? This, this lawyer truly believed that he loved his neighbors well, when in reality, he was not doing so hot. In reality, Jesus' expectations went far beyond this man's expectations. So you ready for Jesus' response to the question, who is my neighbor? Let's read on. Look at verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus begins this story, this, this parable. And he tells us about a man who's going down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, for those of us who struggle with, I don't know if the Bible's true or not. You know, one, one thing that, I, it's just circumstantial evidence, is that as you look through the Bible, the, the names and the dates and the places that the Bible lists always line up with history and with geography and with dates and, and, and kings and kingdoms. It, all, it always lines up. They, they never contradict. And, and notice he says, uh, there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's not like I'm going down the road. Literally, there was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 17-mile-long road, and Jerusalem was set up on a hill, so you would literally go down to Jericho, and it all just lines up. Just, just a little nugget of circumstantial evidence here. And, and what happens to this man as he's going down the road in, into Jericho, Jesus says he gets mugged. He, he just gets, he gets mugged. Now, the other day I was running. The weirdest thing happened to me. I thought I was maybe about to get mugged or something, but I was, I was running along in West Roxbury, and there's this guy, and as I'm running down the sidewalk, he's kind of waving his arms at me like a gorilla on this side, and I go on this side, and then he comes over and waves his arms like a girl on this side. I slow down, and I kind of, I'm ready to dodge him. And as I get closer, he just kind of awkwardly wraps me up and just starts slapping me like a gorilla. And he was just completely trashed and drunk, and so I just kind of, yeah, I don't know, and I just ran. But I didn't get mugged, fortunately. But this guy actually gets mugged to the point, he says they, they rob him, they, they strip him naked. I'm so glad I wasn't naked on the middle of the road in West Roxbury. That would have been bad. Uh, they strip him naked. They beat him until he's half dead. And so he's, he's, he's unconscious, right? And so the question, Jesus, who is, who is my, my neighbor? Who am I to love as much as I love myself? Let me ask you, how do we, how do we characterize and identify people today? Think about it. If we were to be completely honest with ourselves, we characterize and generalize and identify people today based on how they look, one. So the, the clothes they wear, you can look at somebody and say, yeah, they're a professional type, or they're a hipster, or they're a musician, or they're urban, or they're probably blue-collar because of the paint all over their jeans and their steel-toe boots, or they're white-collar. And, and so clothes they wear, physical appearance, very attractive, very fit, not really clean-shaven, she hasn't dyed her hair in a while. Something's up, right? And, and we, we kind of identify, characterize people based on how they look, whether or not we like to admit it. Also, we, we characterize and identify people 
by our communication with them. Do they have an accent? Are they from around here? Or do they sound very articulate, intelligent, or, or maybe the opposite of that? Those are, are ways that people tend to judge other people and identify other people. Now, let me ask you, could you do that with this man? You couldn't do the, that with the man. Why? He had no clothes on. You couldn't judge him by his clothes. He was probably unrecognizable. He was unconscious. So you couldn't talk to him and, and hear if he was intelligent or not. He just w- was, was beat. He was just laying there for, for dead. You couldn't determine if he was like you or not like you, if he was from here or from, from there. You couldn't identify whether he was your neighbor as you might think of your neighbor. What's the only thing that you can identify about this person? It's that he's a human. And that gets at the heart of Jesus. And that is what exposes our hearts. This guy got, he's got all the external stuff kind of removed from him. He's just a human, bloodied and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. But he's a, a person that we're to love. Now Jesus will give us three people who come across this mugged man. The first one is a priest. So let's read verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So who is my neighbor? Who am I to love as much as I love myself? Well, we've got a a priest We've got a, a leader of, of God's people, the one who is to, to set the example for God's people. He sees this needy and desperate, bloody, beaten, naked, unrecognizable man. And what does he do? He goes to the other side of the road. He just passes right on by. Now, most people hear that and say, unbelievable, that priest. He gets a bad, bad, bad rap. And, and he should. But sometimes we're a little too hard on, on the the priest. How could he do this? He's a religious leader. How could he ignore such obvious needs? But let me just, let me, let me just explain some things to you. First of all, the, the priest likely would have been coming off of his two-week stent up at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he's just finished his duty for God. And, and, and he's coming down. He sees this man. Now, if he gets too close to this man, whether he touches this man or if he gets within uh, four cubits, that would be about six feet of this man, the, the priest would now be deemed ritually unclean. So if he gets close to this man, or, or especially if he, he touches this man, he, he'd be unclean and he would uh, be seen as shamed in his religion. If he did touch the man, however, he would then have to go back up to Jerusalem to perform uh, ceremonial, ritualistic uh, purification rites. He would have then had to purchase a heifer. He would have had to burn the heifer all the way down to, to ash. He would then have to go to the eastern gate with all of the sinful. He would have to tell one of his co-workers, one of his fellow priests about his transgression. And so he would be shamed. He would be unable to, to, to bring his uh, temple provisions, his, his pay back to Jericho to his family. And so now he's pushing, this would take well over a week, now he's pushing upwards of a month away from his friends and and family rather than just the the two weeks. So it's not so easy to judge the priest now, is it? You kind of see, okay, I'm seeing what's going on here. It's kind of hard to to ask ourselves, well, what would I do in that that situation? 
all of this would be necessary for me as well. So showing, showing love to people, that sacrificial kind of love to people, it can infringe upon my, my status, my reputation. It can infringe upon my, my ease, my comfort, my wallet for this priest even. And hear this even can infringe upon my time with my family. And let me just say something. Hear me on this. We have a ton of young families in our church, which is a beautiful thing that God's doing. And, and, and we're, we're one generation removed from a season in the life of the, the church, capital C, global, where, where parents often said, the generation before us often said, if I work for God, God will take care of my family. So I'm just going to do all these things for the Lord and, and, and God will take care of my family if I, I work for God. And so many parents sacrifice their kids at the altar of ministry. And especially that's kind of where preacher's kids get that rap. Oh, the PKs got to look out for them, right? Because a lot of the professional ministers... They were the ones who sacrificed kids at the altar of ministry. And, and now these kids have grown up, and they're adults, and maybe you're there. Parents maybe did that to you. And, and they're having babies. And so now we hold tightly to our, our, our family time. And that's a good thing. That's incredibly important. I want to encourage every single one of you to do that. But here's what happens historically, is that people tend to swing the pendulum to one extreme or to the other. From one extreme mistake to maybe another extreme mistake. Generation to generation. So that my mom and dad did this, I'm going to do this. Kind of think about tattoos, for example. So the generation above us, tattoos were very taboo. Now it's like everybody my age has a tattoo. So I don't tend to think that my kids, I'm going to have to be saying, oh, don't do the tattoo. I don't tend to think the generation behind us, tattoos are going to be all in. When mom and dad has a tattoo, you don't want a tattoo, Right? Worst example, culturally speaking, today are mom pants. You know what I'm talking about? I, can I say this? Did he just say that? Mom pants? The generation above us? Mom pants. We're like not going there. If you know what I'm talking about, we'll connect afterwards and just kind of vent to each other. That, that we tend to, and it, things socially speaking, and, and they, they tend to swing one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and they, they skip, and we, we, we tend to do this as well. And, and, and so... We drift and, and we are to, to cherish family time. But sometimes we go so far as we cherish family time to the extreme that it becomes for us an excuse to do nothing. Like absolutely nothing. And apparently from what we read here, that excuse doesn't fly with Jesus. Here's a man who Jesus is saying, no, you should have you sacrificed a little bit. Yeah, it would have taken you away from your family for a little while longer, but you should have sacrificed. Yeah, you might not have been able to bring the money home to your kids, but you should have sacrificed. This excuse doesn't, it, it doesn't fly with Jesus. There, there's a healthy middle in between the two extremes of the pendulum swinging. And that is, you protect family time while at the same time displaying a healthy level of sacrifice. And that's between you and the Holy Spirit to, to find that so that your kids will see the sacrifice and that your kids will even be in with you on the, the sacrifice. That's, that's really, really important that they'll be in on the sacrifice with you. Uh, another, maybe another excuse that the priest could have 
likely used and, and, and felt was, you know what, I've already done my ministry duty. I, I'm, I'm leaving Jerusalem, so I've already kind of done my part, so I'm excused not to, to help this man. And when we kind of have that attitude, oh, this is my ministry, and something pops up, that's not my ministry. That's, that's not really, for me, we excuse ourselves, but we miss some of the best opportunities. Some of the best ministry opportunities, those organic opportunities just arise in the day-to-day. Think about when we looked at Jesus and the feeding of 5,000. It wasn't this planned out ministry opportunity when he was going to different places intentionally to serve people. He was retreating with his disciples, wasn't he? They were going to be together and just hang out and get refreshed and report about all that they had seen while they were away. And they were in a desolate place, but people just followed him and he didn't say, well, sorry, This is what I'm called to do right now. He pauses here and he serves over here. And it also served his little children, his disciples, because they got to see him sacrifice a bit and they were in on it with him. And so be cautious. It's my warning to all of us. But be cautious of being too busy to love people as the opportunities arise. We have to work on creating intentional margin in our lives or at least in our minds so that when it comes we can say okay I gotta pause I'm busy but I'm gonna pause and give it to the Lord don't let concern for for status and the approval of other people like the priest and the running away from from the shame that he would experience at the temple don't let that keep you from loving people who are in desperate need of your your care don't be too concerned with protecting your wallet to the neglect of meeting needs sacrifice the way Jesus would sacrifice. There's so much to be learned from this missed opportunity from the priest, isn't there? I mean, there's just, we could go on and on and on. Jesus goes on. Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, the man, and passed by on the other side. Okay, so now we have not a priest, but we have a Levite. Levites were... You know, Let's put it in modern terms. Levites were essentially the interns to the priest. They kind of helped around with the work that the priest would do around the, the temple. But they were really forever interns. It's the intern that's never going to get promoted. You know what I'm talking about? They're going to be an intern for life. That's, that's who they are. They're not going to become priests. And, and, and Jesus tells us that the Levites do the exact same thing. This Levite does the exact same thing as the priest. Remember, this is a a 17-mile road downhill. So one could see several miles ahead of where you're at. And so the the Levite very well could have seen ahead, saw the priest pass on by, or just kind of put two and two together. I know the priest is ahead of me. And come across this man and say, the priest clearly didn't help either. And so the Levite says, well, I'm not. And of course he doesn't, right? The priest is his leader. And so the Levite is going to do the exact same thing as the priest. Does that make sense? He's going to do the exact same thing as, as the priest. So, so let's go back to parents for a minute. I'm a parent. And so I, I feel like I can kind of talk about this stuff. And I'm not angry with parents, by the way. Let me just say that there. But I really don't want us families to miss out on a huge opportunity. I, I sincerely, deeply pray and long that this church would just be loaded with sacrificial, ministry-minded families. And so parents, here's what we get from this. You're the leader of your family, and they will do what you are doing right now. 
they will do exactly what you are doing. Of course they're going to follow your lead, right? I mean, of course they're going to follow your lead. You can never say, do as I do, or as I say, but not as I do. And so, if you say, you know, I have young kids, so I'm the exception to really, I'm just going to show up and leave and never do anything. And that's, it's, I'm the exception. I have young kids. It's just a crazy season of life. If, if you live that way, you just plug in on Sundays, that, that's, that's it until, I'm going to check out until they're 15, 16. Do you think when they're 16, 17, 18 in college, they're going to be plugging in? You think they're going to say, oh, you know what? I understand mom and dad are really busy, but I'm young and I have a lot of time on my hands. So we haven't plugged in for 15, 16 years, but, but, but I'm going to because you think it's going to click for them? Of course it's not. They're going to do exactly what you have done. They're going to do exactly what you have done. And so when they're 17 and they have some time on their hands, they're not going to plug in because they've been around mom and dad who have not been plugged in and serving and being about the mission of Jesus. They're going to do exactly what you are doing now. You are setting the the precedent. And so if Saturday is a late night and my kids need to sleep in the morning... And you just say, you know what? Let's just, let's not worry about it. What do you think is going to happen when they're at UMass? And they have the opportunity to have a late Saturday. They're going to have a late Saturday. And they're going to sleep in as well. Not be plugged into church and college. Lose the faith of their parents. And so this Levite does exactly what his leader does. Children will do exactly what their parents do. This Levite is also much more humble than the priest financially. Let's talk about his finances for a minute. He's not making as much as the priest. He's, he's probably barely getting by. He, he, he can't afford to care for this man. He's probably thinking, I mean, if the priest can't, certainly I can't afford to care for this man. And so one other thing that often happens in, in church life is when needs ar- arise, we often think, well, somebody else should be taking care of this, not me. And what happens when everybody says somebody else? Nothing gets done. Nothing gets done. So the priest leaves the man to the Levite because the priest has already done his duty and he shouldn't defile himself. The Levite leaves the man. Well, maybe the priest, he, he could have, should have done it. And if he's too big for this and, 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 and is unable to do it, then I, I shouldn't either. I'll follow my leader and he makes excuses. But there's one final person of the three and it's a Samaritan is why we know this is the parable of the good Samaritan. Read with me 33 through 37. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A Samaritan did all that? Jews hated Samaritans. In fact, when he answers back to Jesus, verse 37 he said, the one who showed him mercy. He wasn't even willing to say it was the Samaritan who did the right thing. He said, oh, that guy. 
the one who showed him mercy. See, when Israel was in captivity, they hooked up, some of them, with their, their captors, and they had children. When the Old Testament law said, you cannot do that. You can only marry and have children with God-fearing Jews. And so the Samaritans are their descendants. Born in sin, they were half-breeds according to the, the, the culture of the day. They were despised. The Jews hated them. The Samaritans are not Gentiles. They're not entirely non-Jews. They are Jews. He's a Jew. And so all of these laws, these purification, ceremonial, ritualistic laws we've talked about apply to this Samaritan as well. But Jesus says, verse 33, the Samaritan is moved with compassion when he comes by this man along the road. When nobody else acted, he says to the Jewish people of that day, he says, your enemy acted when none of you were willing to do it. He says he got close. He would have gotten down on his knees. He bandages up his wounds. He, he pours oil and, and, and wine, things that are costly on him to, to care for him. He puts him up on his own animal. So he's actually got to physically put this man on his own animal. He brings him to an inn. He pays for the inn. He, he cares for the man at the inn. And then it says, and then the next day, this man still needed care, which means that he had been with him all night long caring for them. Have you ever spent all night caring for somebody? Been on the phone for hours and hours and you've got an exam in the morning or you've got a big deadline in the morning, you've got a speech to make in the morning or a presentation, you've got an early morning for work. Would you be willing to, to be with somebody all night long in their time of, of need? And just be with them and care for them or invite them over. There was one time, Becky and I specifically remember doing that. We had this guy who was in a rough, rough situation and showed up at our house late at night. And we let him stay overnight. It was kind of a sketchy situation. And, and some might say, Josh, that's not smart. You have kids. You should not let some man in, in your house. Now, trust me, the door was locked in our bedroom and all the kids were in our bed with us. But this man is in our house. And it was risky. I get it. But our faith is kind of like sports sometimes. Without taking some risks, we're not going to see great things. If we play it safe all the time, we're not going to see great plays. You know what I mean? And sometimes we've got to take risks to see God do some great things. And other people around you are going to see God do great things as you take risks. My oldest son remembers that day really well. And he's been deeply impacted by that day, the time we let the crazy guy stay at our house. And the next morning, he still needed care. So he apparently was with them all night long. He gives money to the innkeeper. We don't know why he had to leave, but he gives money to the innkeeper and says, you continue to care for him. So he essentially says, here's my credit card. Any charges that he incurs along the way, just, just count it to me, I'll pay for it. That's, that's sacrifice, right? That, that's love for his neighbor. That's love from a Samaritan of all people. Now let me remind you, we still know nothing about this neighbor. That's big, isn't it? What qualifies this man for our love? Nothing. We know nothing about him. Is it how he dresses? No. Is it how he looks? No. Is it how he's communicated to us and how he's treated us and how he's been kind to us and so we should love him back? No. What qualifies him for our love? 
to love him as much as we love ourselves? Simply that he's a human. And this is all coming from who? This is all coming from Jesus who loves us. Why? Because you earned it? Because of how you look? Because of how well you spoke to him the last time you spoke to him? Because of how consistent you are in your personal spiritual disciplines? Because of how holy you are? Now you're never inconsistent in the secret place than you are on a Sunday morning. Is that why he loves us? No. He loves us like we're to love this man. Completely unconditional, completely unqualified love. And so it is our sincere desire for our church to be a people who really believe this. Who actually live this out. Who deeply care for people all the time, all people. That's the kind of faith community that he's calling us to be. That's the kind of faith community that will make an impact. Imagine with me if we would all live like that Samaritan. Not safe, sacrificial. If we all live like that, we'd see many people drawn to Jesus as they're scratching their head. How could you love me like this? I treated you so poorly. How do you continue to love me? And that gives us the opportunity to share the reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. And we get to say it's because of Jesus and he's loved me like that. Imagine if our children grew up in that kind of environment. Imagine if the college students that God entrusted into our care are around that kind of environment. Many of them coming from churches that aren't preaching the gospel at all or no churches at all until they get to college. Imagine if they saw an authentic faith, people who deeply believed this, deeply acted this out, who treated people this kind of way. Imagine if they saw that. That would be so much more valuable than you being huddled at your home or going on amazing vacations and spending awesome time with your kids all the time. That would be so much more beneficial for them. I finished with one final story. And we're going to go real quickly through it. It's the story of Mary and Martha. I preached it three times in the life of our church, short life of our church. And so I'm not going to bang through it every little detail. But there's a huge principle I think we need to see if we want to live this out. Let's just read it, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. We're moving on. And a woman named Mary welcomed, or Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So very simply, there's a woman named Martha. Welcomes Jesus into her home. She has a sister named Mary. And while Jesus is, is, is with the other people in the house at the party, Martha is serving and she is cooking and she is preparing and she is cleaning and she is doing her thing. And we see that while Martha serves, Mary sits. She just sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha gets upset, comes to Jesus, and she complains. Jesus, I am working hard. I'm caring for you. But my sister is sitting here doing nothing. 
And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better portion. And so is serving wrong? We read all throughout the scripture, it is more than not wrong. It is required and expected of us, commanded throughout the Bible. But here's what we get from this little story. It's what comes first? What comes before serving? It's sitting. It's being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. I close with this. If we are going to be this kind of compassionate community that loves people as much as we love ourselves, we don't start at, let me figure out how I can go be compassionate. We don't start at compassion, we start at Christ. He is our motivation. He's our motivation for serving. It's his love, it's being with him and understanding what he has done for us. That's what compels us. That's what compels us. If you just go straight to trying to exercise service and compassion without the motivation of Jesus, you're going to get exhausted. You're going to question, is this worth it? Why am I doing this? But if you sit at the feet of Jesus, if you're with Jesus and you know him and you understand him and you love him and you build a relationship with him, it just starts to flow out of you because you see the love that he has lavished upon you and you can't help but show that to other people. So let's make sure that we catch this. He wants us to be a compassionate, caring, sacrificial, loving community. That's our deep desire for our church, that we would be the real deal. That our hearts and our actions would, would line up. That we would not just say, yes, I love Jesus and I love my neighbor as much as ourselves. But we would actually love people as much as we love ourselves and our actions would display something that's true in our hearts. But it would all flow out of a vibrant love for Jesus. Flow out of a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And so here's how we close. We close today in prayer, asking him sincerely, deeply asking him, Jesus, give me a love for you. I want to know you more. I want to overflow out of that compassion for you. I want our church family to be that. We pray for that. We plead with him for that. And then we also come before him in song and just focus on him think on his love for us because we can't love people unconditionally until we know his unconditional love for us. And when you know it and you experience it, you cannot help but share it with other people and to show it to other people. And so I'm going to pray for us to that end and then we're going to continue on in worship. God, thank you for this amazing passage. God, we plead with you to make us this kind of people, this kind of church community. People who we don't care so much about what other people think about us. We're willing to take on the shame that the world throws at us. If we can just be with you and know you and love people deeply. That we would be selfless and sacrificial. That those who come behind us, whether it's children or people we're pouring into, come behind us, they'd see it and they'd live it out too. That they would see an authentic and vibrant faith. It just doesn't make us say things. It helps us to live out things that are countercultural. So Lord, we plead with you to do that in us as individuals, as families, as friends, collective church family. Do that in us, please, Lord. But may it all stem out of a, a relationship with you. And so God, we want to close just fixing our eyes on you, giving and singing and worshiping and thinking on our great God. 
So Lord, we commit this time of response to you. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room who's never given their life to Jesus and they see the sacrificial love of Jesus who gave it all for us, that he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he came back to life because death has no hold on our king. They see that sacrificial love for them that they right now would give their hearts fully to Jesus. I commit them to you. Commit our family to you. Mold us and make us into exactly what you want us to be. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.